0: Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. It's my podcast. Welcome, happy to have you here. Another episode. Strap in. Taylor Lorenz is my guest today. Taylor is an internet reporter, a culture writer. She has been chronicling the internet and uh, the people on it for a number of years now. She's currently at the Washington Post, but has previously written for the New York Times, Daily Beast, The Atlantic. And Taylor has a great new book out. It's called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And I got to tell you, it was a fascinating read. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, definitely go pick up Taylor's book. Because she really chronicles the rise of social media, the rise of influencer culture, and the rise of kind of people as brands. It's really interesting to track. She, she starts in the year 2000 with the development of blogs and goes on from there into Facebook and Twitter and Vine. Remember Vine? I had forgotten about Vine and there's a whole chapter in there and, and we'll get to that in the conversation today. Taylor thinks Vine is, is really, really important to the development of the internet that we are living in now. Instagram, TikTok, all of that stuff gets covered. And it's not just the story of these platforms. Actually, it's, it's really not the story of these platforms at all. It's not the tech behind them or the CEOs or the business decisions that were happening. There's a little of that, very, very little, mostly as it relates to the content creators that really built these platforms into what they became. So it was a really cool, interesting book. The one thing I've got to say about it is for me, it felt like reading a foreign language at times. I guess it shows how siloed the internet can be. Like, there are people that I follow specific to my interests. I've talked to Jimmy DiResta on this show, who's an amazing woodworker and metalworker and all that. Jimmy is a huge star in the kind of maker space. The people that are into making things with their hands know and revere Jimmy. The people that are not in that world have no idea who he is. The same with kind of like there's RV channels and stuff that I follow. You know, I'm a big RVer. And there are people that I get RV news from on YouTube or Instagram or whatever it is. And nobody else knows who they are, which is interesting. But Taylor's zooming out, too, and looking at kind of the big, these are like the big Gen Z stars, you know, Logan Paul, Casey Neistat, people like that, who I'm kind of vaguely familiar with, but never have really followed, never tracked their work. These are the people that really exploded with, you know, tens of millions of followers and making tens of millions of dollars as these influencers. And it's interesting, too, because it's a story that in some ways is happening in real time. And those are always the hardest to absorb, right? Like it's easy to look back at history and see the different plot points in a story and say, oh, okay, that's the beginning, middle and end. But when you're living through something, sometimes it's hard to know. Exactly where you are. And, you know, Taylor's reporting goes back 20 years in this book, 20 plus years at this point. It's stories that I kind of forgot about. I mean, when I started at this old house in 2005, we were trying to figure out digital media and digital video in particular. It was a world that we tried a lot of different things in, never quite found the footing for it within a legacy media organization, never quite found the right backers to make it happen and we watch from the sidelines as a lot of people that were younger and scrappier and, you know, more versatile than us were really making a killing in, in those early days. And then the book follows right up to modern times and, you know, TikTok influencers and and that whole world. And this is all interesting for me too, because just tracking the rise of these kind of homemade influencers, if you will. Like, I've done a lot of work in recent times uh, doing producing and directing for advertising. And there's often the request to make something look like an organic TikTok or an organic YouTube video, but bringing in a lot of money and professional resources to do that. So it's kind of interesting to hear the stories of a lot of times these teenagers or young adults that were doing it with absolutely nothing and realizing that, oh, they're setting the blueprint now which I'm trying to replicate as a, you know, nearly 40-year-old man <laughs> trying to to make something look seamless and look like it was done in a teen's bedroom when in fact, you know, there's a a 10-person crew behind the scenes and, you know, weeks of editing to make one little video. So yeah, we had a great talk about the history of the internet. We also end up getting into a lot of things about the future of the internet. I'm very curious with with what's happening at Twitter. Uh, since Elon Musk has taken over, it has not been the same platform that I am used to. Obviously, Taylor uh, has has the same experience, and we talk a lot about that and just the changes over there, what they've meant for people that, like me, I came up on Twitter, and it's what helped build this podcast in a lot of ways. And now I ju- engagement is way down, and uh, I don't really post over there anymore. So we'll talk about that. And we also get into the election in 2024 and the implications of two very old candidates for president in Joe Biden and probably Donald Trump. And what that means relative to digital media, what that means relative to Gen Z. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I hope you'll get something out of it. And we also talk a little bit about COVID. I've got to just, before we get into it, say Taylor has been one of the people that I have been following throughout the pandemic. In addition to her digital media reporting and talking about what's happening on social media, she also has been spreading the word when COVID spikes have been happening, keeping people informed about what type of masks they should be having, how to keep indoor air ventilated, all that kind of stuff. That has been super, super helpful, and I've got to say has really informed my own approach and my family's approach to the pandemic. We've had COVID once. Knock on wood, hopefully we don't get it again, trying our best to be as safe as possible. And a lot of that is because of Taylor's social media and the the, uh, information that she is sharing over there. So I really appreciate all the work she's doing there. And before we get to the interview, I've got to just say if you enjoyed this episode today and you want to hear more from Willoughby Hills, sign up for my newsletter It is free. It comes out twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. And you'll also get alerted to every new podcast episode when you get on the mailing list. Go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter. And if you'd like to support the work that I do here, there are paid options as well. So you can upgrade to a paid membership. It helps keep this podcast going, helps keep the newsletter going, and helps keep bringing interesting guests like Taylor onto the show. So thank you in advance for your support, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. All right, here it is, my conversation with Taylor Lorenz. So I want to start with the book, I guess, because you've been on kind of the internet culture beat for a long time. And this book kind of narrows down into that influencer side of it. I'm curious, like, why focus on that piece in particular what made you want to want to write that book
1: yeah well the book is about sort of the first 20 years of the rise of social media so it's about kind of the rise of these different platforms and the way they all emerged. And and it really tells the user side of social media. You know, I think we've had so many platform specific books that kind of look at the lens of social media through, you know, just like YouTube or the zillion Facebook, you know, books we have, or like the social network, but they don't really zoom out and talk about kind of how everything happened, how the, you know, the interplay between these platforms and kind of how users shaped the sort of social media landscape that we have today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I feel like there's this myth out there that kind of the platforms themselves and the founders are these kind of visionaries that just had this brilliant idea one day and it caught fire. And you kind of dispel that myth early on. I mean, talking about like YouTube was originally set up as a dating site. Twitter was going to be a podcasting platform until kind of a last minute pivot. Like, that's kind of interesting to me that just these platforms haven't always been what we think they are. But also, as you say, like the power of of users and actually kind of building these into what they became.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think so often, exactly like you said, people sort of build these platforms thinking they will be one thing and they really don't end up ever sort of knowing what it will become. You know, like I think when they made, you know, a podcasting app we'll called Odeo, right? Like they could have never imagined they would build this global news service like right. that is sort of what Twitter became or same with YouTube, you know, when they saw people uploading family videos this site, they were like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a dating site. What, what are users doing? And so I just think it's so interesting. Social products are really unique sort of forms of technology in that way, and that they are so sort of a product of their user base, unlike other forms of technology where like, obviously, like Apple builds their computers for people, but people don't shape the computers back. There's not that push and pull relationship.
0: Sure. It's interesting too. like kind of where you chose to start the book, because I feel like you you started in in the year 2000 and with blogs and I feel like you could have gone earlier and, you know, AOL chat rooms or GeoCities or, you know, all these different things of the 90s yeah. or or could have gone later to, you know, when Facebook rose and all like why choose 2000 as the starting place?
1: Yeah, well, I started writing the book in 2020 and it just felt like there was this time like, I mean, yes, there was sort of social technology and I kind of mentioned it a little bit before the year 2000, but I think the year 2000 was a huge turning point for the Internet, obviously, you know, Y2K, but also. So just like you started to really sort of see these examples of bloggers, you know, upending sort of traditional power. So, yes, you know, people were in chat rooms were socializing prior to that. It's not like the Internet didn't exist prior to that. Sure. Like people in those communities, it was not having exactly the same sort of like big impact on culture or politics or whatever. So, yeah, it just really seemed like that stuff started to happen in the aughts, and I wanted to start with blogging um, for that reason. Sure.
0: I mean, a part of that uh, influence is obviously just audience and getting people talking and, as you say, kind of upending some of these traditional power structures. Obviously, a piece of it's commercial as well, just people putting themselves out there kind of for the first time as brands, cutting these partnership deals with brands. You dive into that a lot in the book. And it's a big shift in sort of how how Madison Avenue viewed the internet. And, you know, tell me about that change, I guess.
1: Hugely, yeah. I mean, I think the aughts were this really interesting time in advertising because so many sort of notions of advertising were shifting due to the internet. You know, you could reach people at scale in a way that you couldn't previously and this notion of sponsored content was just emerging. I mean, prior to the odds, you know, celebrities had brand deals and you had these people, sometimes I talk about in my book, this notion of like connector moms or these like people in the communities that maybe could, you know, have had many connections themselves, like in the physical world. Sure. But it wasn't until kind of like the second half of the aughts really that you saw people building these connections at scale in the digital world, and then marketers kind of like taking advantage of that. And then some of the people themselves actually like building their own brands, you know, and marketing them to their audience.
0: It's interesting thinking about the physical corollaries there. Like I hadn't really considered this until you were just saying it now. But it's almost like it's, it's a explosive version of a Tupperware party or, you know, an Avon salesperson or something just like, This idea that instead of reaching 10 people in your living room, though, you're reaching tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people.
1: Exactly. I mean, it it just sort of changed what became possible and like who how marketing works. And it also kind of upended these notions when these content creators started to build their own brands, because in business, there was always this idea of, you know, you build a product, and then you market that product to, you know, a specific audience. Yeah. And um, what content creators are doing more and more and, and sort of started to do back then is, is say, okay, I'm actually building the audience first, and then I will develop products to suit that audience. But it's this audience first sort of way of building a business or product or brand or whatever. And so and it's very successful.
0: Yeah, I mean, apparel lines, makeup lines, like all these different things with these influencers names on it. And it's interesting, too, because I don't know that, like, if I were to walk down the aisle of a a Target or a Coles or something, I would necessarily know who that influencer was. But because it's directed just to their audience online often, like, you can reach a very targeted audience that way as well.
1: Exactly. I mean, you can reach people with similar interests, similar, like it opens up a whole new way, uh, world of possibilities and some niches, like things that might have seemed small, where if you're a marketer or, or you're, you know, building something and maybe you want to reach specific sort of niche groups, but like previously it might not have made sense to market to those people because they were so kind of spread out and hard to reach. And now niche communities are more relevant online, you know, like you can collect all the people that I guess are uh, between the ages of 13 and 15 and into Dungeons and Dragons or something (laughs) like it's very easy to like kind of segment audiences out on the internet and then reach those audiences.
0: Sure. It's interesting in the book too, because there's so many platforms that you discuss that are still with us today, obviously Facebook, Twitter in some way, YouTube, um, one of the, the platforms that you talk about that's no longer around is Vine. And you actually go so far as to say, this is in quotes here, of the video apps that sprang up in the mid-2010s, Vine was the most important. Like, I don't know that I thought, I, I'm a little older too. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm not a Gen Zer, so it, uh, it spoke to me in a different way, I guess. But I'm curious sort of why the importance of Vine, because it, it is something that I feel like I kind of missed out on when it was happening.
1: Yeah. Vine, I mean, Vine is one of the most important apps to ever sort of exist on the social internet. It was the first mobile video editing app that had sort of true social functionality at scale and, and was able to scale. You know, you have to remember before Vine, there was definitely no TikTok. There was also no Instagram video. Right. Vine ushered in this huge shift towards um this video driven social landscape that we live in now. It really sort of mainstreamed video editing and, and posting videos to, you know, a large swath of the population that probably wouldn't have recorded and posted their own videos online before. Like it really taught people to kind of post that sort of content and there wouldn't be, you know, there would be no TikTok without Vine. Vine was just so impactful in terms of and And also it birthed this generation of content creators that are still some of the biggest content creators today on the Internet. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's wild. And, and it's funny for me, again, like kind of generationally, just there, there are people in this book. I enjoyed reading the book, but there's a lot of characters in it that I don't know or, or kind of only vaguely know as like, you know, actors in, in other people's tweets or something. You know what I mean? Like they're not people that I have a direct audience connection to. But then there was a point you made towards the end of the book where you had described a photo shoot, I think, as like being Backstreet Boy-esque. And it kind of clicked for me that I was like, oh, these creators are just they're the Beatles (laughs) or they're, you know, in sync or like there has been a version of this, you know, teen sensation for multiple generations it's just happening on the internet now. And I'm sure the reaction to the Beatles or the boy bands of the 2000s or what, like, it was probably the same with older generations.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. And I always think about, um, I was a huge NSYNC fan. And (laughs) I always think about, you know, what I would have done if I had access to social media when NSYNC was around. But Yeah, I mean, I think that this is fandom and entertainment. And for young, younger people, especially Gen Z people and younger, the internet is the default form of entertainment. It's where you go to discover music or watch shows or, you know, watch programming or follow sort of people making video content. And so, you know, those are sort of like the big time stars in the entertainment world for them. I think it's just a big shift in sort of media consumption and entertainment. And older people don't always sort of recognize it because they think of sort of like a star or celebrity very much as like a movie star. Right.
0: And and kind of needing those traditional gatekeepers, you know, whether it's studios or media or whatever it is to get to the place they are. Whereas, you know, you can have a very direct and very instant connection with a fan base. I mean, sometimes overnight you describe sometimes in the book.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. It can come so fast. And I think that's something that's very different too than previously, because previously you would be in this system and the Hollywood is really broken in so many ways. But there were these sort of like structures around it and you weren't your fame didn't happen quite so quickly. I mean, it still happened very quickly, but nothing compared to the internet. Yeah. And also, you know, people in traditional Hollywood, like kids, especially that became famous in traditional Hollywood, there's so many guardrails, like they have to be in school a certain amount per day if they're performing on a set or they have to, they'll have a publicist. And, you know, it's just a different landscape where kids that blow up on the internet. It's like they're largely living their lives and they blow up and there's not, you know, it's not like they suddenly get a publicist. So... It's very different.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talk about the communities, though, that, that these groups formed. I mean, sometimes just online, but sometimes physically living together and having these different hype houses and things where they can all kind of create with each other and kind of live that experience together. Because I, I think it was, yeah, like you say, so new that there weren't kind of these traditional things in place to, to help them understand or absorb that fame in any way.
1: 100%. Exactly. It's just such a Wild West kind of industry. There's no regulations. There's no... A lot of managers in this space are really scammy. And so it's just, I think it's definitely hard for young people to navigate.
0: Yeah. On the kind of gatekeeping front, though, there are still some kind of traditional barriers that we see across any industry. You point out race in particular being a challenge and that, you know, often Black content creators aren't getting the same brand deals as white ones or aren't being featured in the same way. How much of that do you think is just a symptom of where we are as a society and how much of it is... I don't know, maybe a blind spot on the uh, on the platform side? Or like, what do you think it is that that causes that racial disparity?
1: Yeah, it's not really the apps, although I think the apps can inadvertently exacerbate it just because they have these like engagement driven feeds that reinforce a lot of like societal biases often. But it's a societal bias. I mean, the issue is that, you know, a beautiful, thin, young, blonde girl like Alex Earl, for instance, or any of these other content creators that have blown up recently, like, they are seen as very aspirational. And that is just that is the beauty standard in the United States. And so you have young girls and young people that want to follow that person and look up to that person. So they start to get brand deals and becomes, you know, they can they can build this path for themselves. It's much harder for black content creators, disabled content creators, you know, people from different backgrounds. They don't have maybe like the aspirational look or they don't have access to, you know, maybe they're poor and they don't have the same sort of nice clothing that it takes to sort of attract people and sure so it's just you know it's just very hard and i think that uh the internet can kind of just yeah as i was saying like exacerbate these society-wide biases and and sort of preferences and so i think those are things that need to be fixed in society before they can be reflected in our tech platforms
0: sure i mean yeah it's it's a mirror of, of where we are as a society for sure um on the gatekeeper front, too, just thinking of, again, like a traditional system, whether it's a newspaper or a TV network or whatever it is, there's producers, editors, reporters, there's kind of all these different layers of, of fact checking and making sure that what gets out is as accurate as possible and, you know, things like that. Obviously, when anybody can broadcast from a cell phone, you have the challenges of, of disinformation. Uh, you know, we've seen that with elections. We've seen that with COVID. like. What are you seeing in terms of how platforms are trying to tackle disinformation or misinformation?
1: You know, it's really depressing and sad because they are horrible at it. And (laughs) I I just wrote a story. I I just wrote a story about Threads, which is Instagram's Twitter competitor, blocking the word vaccine in the middle of another huge COVID surge that we're you know, entering into, they're just rolling out the fall boosters. And now they've blocked the word vaccine. They've blocked the words long COVID. They weren't letting people with long COVID connect with each other. And I just thought it's such a perfect example of how these platforms cannot moderate. And so they just shut down searches, for instance, for things, or they'll link to a government website, which is very worrying to me. And a lot of people say, oh, well, it's good. They just link to a government website. I mean, as a journalist, I can tell you, you should absolutely... (laughs) not blindly trust the government on anything. You know, uh, look at who we have as president sometimes that, you know, sometimes presidents spread misinformation. If Trump says he won the election just because he's president, does that make it true? Absolutely not. And so that's why we need that's why we need journalists and journalism. And we these tech platforms, they don't like it's very messy. And so they don't like policing misinformation. So they rely on quote unquote official sources and Again, as a journalist, our entire job is usually questioning those official sources. Sure. So it's just very bad. Um, I think we need free and open discussion and we need more thoughtful and nuanced moderation. Um, but that would require these tech platforms investing in those things. And they sort of have you know, shown time and time again that that's not something they care to invest in.
0: Yeah. And I mean, how much of that do you think, like, I don't know if you have a sense of like Zuckerberg or, or Elon Musk or any of these guys, like... How much of that is just like a white male, Northern California perspective on the world of just like, this isn't how I see the world, this isn't my perspective, so it doesn't matter? And how much is, I don't know if it's it's willful ignorance or, or willfully not doing, it just, I feel like they have a bigger role to play in wanting their content moderated, and... I'm curious sort of if you you have any insight into what it is that's that's preventing that from happening.
1: Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, these tech executives don't want to have to deal with moderation on their platform. They just don't. They'll have some basic moderation and maybe, you know, some systems that people can report things that are super egregious. But they have catered time and time again to these people that spread disinformation. I mean, look at Matt Walsh on The Daily Wire on YouTube. YouTube removed his demonetization for spreading misinformation. He's constantly spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories on his channel. And guess what? After a brief suspension, just last week, they re-enabled his monetization, even though he has not changed a single thing about his channel since he lost his demonetization or since he lost his monetization. So I think it's a perfect example of how these platforms, they monetize content. And so it's in their interest for people to be posting as much as possible and as inflammatory stuff as possible because that keeps engagement up. So I think they're never going to police themselves that it's up to outside parties to kind of hold them accountable.
0: Sure. And, and I mean, the flip side to that, I've got to applaud you, by the way, just for kind of your advocacy for COVID and, you know, reminding people that it's still a thing, you know, three and a half years later and masking vaccines, all of that. I, I think you've been one of the people kind of on the front lines of, of that advocacy learned a lot from your feed and, and others. There is a question, though, I guess, of the legitimacy of information. I mean, to your point, like with the thread story, if they're linking to the CDC, but it's out of date, like there is this question, I guess, of, of what is the real truth. And for a user, it, it becomes very difficult to, to try to suss that out.
1: Totally. I mean, while well, I give the example of when the CDC said everyone should go back to work, yeah. you know, in five days and implying that, it's, that you're not contagious when you can absolutely be contagious over five days. You're contagious sort of as long as you're brightly testing positive on a COVID test. But that was a decision that was made that was a political decision, you know, because they wanted people to get back to work, whatever, you know. But again, th- these are political entities making these decisions. And so you need journalists holding them to account and saying, OK, look, here's why this decision was made. It's a political decision and it's not in line with the science of the matter and also scientists themselves. I think as you said it's just it's so hard for people and same with so many things. I mean, election stuff is also something actually people were very confused about.
0: Sure. Still are.
1: Still, and and they don't know how to vote or they believe these these this misinformation constantly and sometimes as you mentioned stuff is very confusing on government websites. It can be very outdated. It's not always updated and so it's just so hard. And I, I think this is why we desperately need to teach people media literacy in this country. We don't teach them media literacy. Yeah. And I think it's a very fraught issue because, of course, you have a huge faction sort of in this country as well. I mean, it, it behooves people in power. I think that have an uneducated public in certain sort of forms of power. Right. Like there are certain people that are in Congress that push misinformation. Sure. Right. That, yeah, that yeah. lies you know, those people, specific political parties, you know, they push misinformation. So it's just very hard because they are never going to say, yes, let's teach kids civics and let's invest, you know, um, (laughs) teaching kids about misinformation because they want they're pushing a political agenda, you know, and that's true of so many people in politics. So it's a very hard and political issue. I can say as a journalist, it's very frustrating and it's why I'm on on social media is because I think. It's really important to explain to my readers or people that follow my work, like, you know, why I think something matters or to really talk about kind of like, hey, you have questions about why I did this story or how I reported this story. Let me answer them for you and have a real dialogue so you feel like you can trust me because it is very hard to figure out who to trust in the world.
0: Sure. I'm curious, like talking about disinformation and stuff, like my mind, like the stereotype in my mind. Goes to a, a baby boomer that's you know watching Fox News and is on Facebook or you know something like that. That's yeah. kind of the the idea I have in my head, but I assume it's just as prevalent at the other end of the generational scale. Like y- you've reported a lot on Gen Z, what is their take on sort of digesting the content that they see and understanding the content that they see?
1: Oh my god, I mean they're just as uh, misinformed as boomers. I hate to say it. <laughs> yeah. I don't- Zoomers believe everything they see on Facebook and, and, you know, Gen Z people often believe everything they see on TikTok. Literally just before this call, I was just, I was wrapping up another Zoom and checked my Instagram for a minute. And I saw someone my age, somebody that I have knew for over a decade, posting crazy misinformation on her Instagram stories. And yeah you know, I had messaged her, oh, this is wrong. And she just doubles down because it validates her beliefs. And you see this happen on TikTok all the time. I don't know if you remember the Wayfair conspiracy where Wayfair, a furniture company, had was selling these big sort of storage chests. And they yeah. had different names, like the Maggie chest or the, you know, how furniture companies right, do. Right. And of course, people said, oh, well, this is actually a front for child trafficking. And I mean, a huge amount of young people on TikTok still believe that was true. Wow. So I I really think we have no media literacy. Boomers get the blame, but young people are just as bad. Everybody just wants to believe whatever validates their preconceived notions.
0: And I mean, if you're Wayfair in that situation, it's, it's what happened to Dominion, I guess, too. Like you yeah. don't you don't know how to unwind that damage. Like once it's out there, you know, you've essentially lost a giant customer base or potential customer base.
1: Exactly. And you've had, you know, huge damage done to your brand. Uh, you know, you're you're admired in controversy. And it's very hard. I mean, I, I I hate to say, I hate to sympathize with the brands of the Internet, but <laughs> I think everyone's reputation is now mediated and sort of crowdsourced, you know, by the Internet. And that can ha- have very bad ends because sure. then that's unreliable.
0: I'm curious, too. You mentioned politics there and, and looking ahead to 2024. Um, there's an interesting generational shift just in the I mean, Biden's going to be, I think, 81 on Election Day. Trump is going to be 79, assuming he's the nominee. And it's like Pelosi just said, she's going to run for another term. I think there's all these politicians that are like at the at the old end of the baby boom that are still holding on to power, like for Gen Zers that want to get involved and, and want to have their voice more heard and are generally more progressive on issues. Like, how did they go about seizing that mantle, I guess, when there are, I guess, a combination of you have a very old kind of incumbent uh, group there but also, just that group I'm assuming doesn't use the same technology and the same communication tools that a lot of the younger people do.
1: No, I, they don't even know how to turn their own computer on. I mean, <laughs> right. it was so painful listening to the TikTok hearing and hear, an, you know, when TikTok CEO was dragged in front of Congress, whenever that was, I can't remember, I think it was earlier this year. I can't remember what year it is right now. Um, but, um, you know, and just the insane questions that they ask that are just, they show they have absolutely, Zero understanding of how this massively important communication tool is used. I think it's so reprehensible that this generation of people, and it's a generation of political leaders on both sides of the aisle, really that refuse to give up power yeah. and feed any power to the youngest generation. And by the way, they legislate in a way that benefits them, and it's at the expense of younger people. And that's we live in this gerontocracy. I I think it's a really Important for young people to work outside of the political system to advocate for change. I think you're quite limited sometimes, and maybe you can't, you know, run for office because you've got a, you have a lot of student debt or something, you know. But you can still make your voice heard online and, and participate in different forms of advocacy. And you know, it's you kind of do the best with what you can. We do have, I think, it's one member of Gen Z in Congress, Maxwell Frost. But, right. but yeah, I mean, it's cute. this is the problem with electoral politics and the way it's all structured too. It's just very hard to kind of challenge that establishment.
0: Yeah. And and I, I, the media establishment kind of goes along with that and social media included. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's very hard.
0: I want to ask you too, you mentioned being on a lot of these social media platforms and it's kind of an interesting line, I think, because you are a reporter on them, but you're also a user and, and a generator of content. Like, does that line ever get tricky for you to navigate?
1: No, I've always been a user. I I mean, I started as a blogger myself. Yeah. So, you know, I don't do sponsored content, really. Like I'm not, you know, my job is still like as a journalist. And I guess this book is like the most um, <laughs> blurred it's ever been in the sense that sometimes I feel like I'm shilling my own merch or something. <laughs> I post about it so much. I'm like, is this what it's like to be an influencer every day? I guess it is. But yeah, no, I mean, I think having a big audience online has helped me a lot because I, again, I can build trust with my readers and I get a lot of sources. And also, I don't think you can really effectively report on these platforms if you don't use them and use them in the ways that kind of people on there use them and engage with them. And so I think it's just given me a lot of a, a leg up, I think, on other people that report on this stuff.
0: Sure. I mean, you've been a part of, of Legacy Newsrooms, though, for most of your career. Like, is that Not
1: most of my career, the minority of my career? It's I been guess, okay. a re- Five, five, <laughs> five, six years
0: ago. Yeah. Okay. That, that's not a long time, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> um, thank you for the correction there. Um, but in thinking about sort of like, I feel like there can often be a resistance within legacy media to social media or to to uh, reporters or, you know, I, I've experienced it myself as a producer, even of like, you're too out there, you're saying too much, you're giving too much away, you know, whatever it is. Like, have you come up against that with with editors with other colleagues? And what's your kind of answer to why you're online?
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Like, I like to make that distinction because I think I spending most, you know, like sort of my formative years in, in digital media. So like, I, you know, I worked for like Mike.com and a lot of these kind of like digital first websites that were really popular in the 2010s. Sure, They have this really any understanding of the Internet. And I think it's right now we're in this weird area where most 99 percent of the legacy media, you know, doesn't understand the internet, but then you have a lot of people like myself that actually have been, you know, as those digital media companies kind of went belly up, were absorbed into the legacy media ecosystem and really get it. And so I've been lucky to work for people that generally get it. My editor right now, 100% gets it, you know, but does every kind of senior leader at these places get it? No. And I, I try to do a lot of explaining and <laughs> right. education, and you know, just say like, okay, so here's why this is. And, Some places are easier to work than others. I mean, I think I really liked my editor so much at the New York Times. I loved my team, but structurally that place is set up in extreme legacy kind of newsroom where it's sure highly restrictive, highly restrictive. And so it's just for someone like me, I just was like, okay, I don't want to work in a environment that's so restrictive. I want to be able to write my own books and do my own things. And so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be at a place like that now. But yeah, it's always this sort of like balancing act and you always have to kind of explain yourself, yeah. um, but that's okay.
0: Well, but there's also this challenge too, I think, where in the olden days, you could come into a job and kind of prove yourself or, you know, maybe have some references or something. But like when you come in as, as a fully baked personality or, or a brand, you know, in quotes, both of those. But like you're a known entity and, and people know your work and, and have an expectation like that baggage for better or worse comes with you to each job.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's for better because, sure. right? because yeah, yeah. you're bringing you're bringing a brand and you're bringing an audience. And so you my audience is not dependent on the place that I work. I sort of don't like to be very I mean, I don't even have it in my Instagram bio, like where I work, because I don't want people to over affiliate me with a specific brand. Like I don't that's you know, I want people to follow me for me and give stories to me because I'm me, not because I work at a specific place because If you build your audience, you know, just only on working at a specific place, if you leave that place, then your audience is taken away. And I never, ever, ever want to be dependent on an employer because I don't trust any employers because I, (laughs) you know, I'm a child of the recession and I know how things can go, you know. So, yeah, I always give that advice to younger journalists is just build your own audience.
0: Totally. Speaking of that, I'm curious, like Twitter has been such a big part of your career. And and for me as well. I mean, you talked about just finding sources and connecting with people and all of that. I mean, I don't know, maybe a quarter of my podcast guests have been like exclusively through Twitter. It was an amazing tool when it was awesome. It's it's not so awesome anymore. Um, I'm reluctantly still there. Uh, I know you still tweet a fair amount, but like... Yeah, I'm curious, just sort of like your take on on what's even happening over there and just, I, I don't know, the reach of it just seems to have been greatly diminished and, and the audience is very different than it was even six or eight months ago.
1: Oh, yeah. It's so radically different. I mean, Elon banned me and and some other journalists last December for reporting on him. Yeah. He was forced to kind of allow us back on. But ever since I've been allowed back on, it's like my whole account has been like, it's so different like the stuff that i get served and also just like my audience is so restricted i made the decision about a year ago i mean around the time that i got banned like once i got back on i just thought because i was banned for asking him for comment and kind of talking about tech stuff and i thought and also just because i don't want to feed the platform any i really don't want to kind of like keep using it for tech news i want people to follow me elsewhere like math on or my newsletter or my YouTube. And so I just made the decision, you know what, I'm not going to use it for tech news anymore. I'm not going to share the stories that I'm reading anymore. I'm only going to use it for COVID advocacy because as somebody that has been affected by COVID and lost people that I care about to COVID, like it's something I really, really, really care about. Yeah. So I just figured I, I was going to just delete my feed and I was like, oh, I should keep my feed. And so I just decided, well, I might as well use it for a good cause. And if I'm going to use it for any cause, i'd should use it for one that i care about so i really just use it for advocacy and i don't care if my audience goes down to zero i'm like at least i educated some people about long COVID on the way and whatever you know it's sad i i'm with you though i used to find so many interesting people on there and now it's just like crypto people and just horrible right-wing accounts screaming at everyone and it's so nice
0: it's um it's interesting too though because like i had been really restricting my time over there for i don't know two three months at least like just really saying you know what like this isn't working. I, I need to go somewhere else. And then when Trump got arrested in, in Georgia and there was the mugshot, like I, I saw it somewhere, like just that, that it was happening, I guess. Maybe I saw it on threads. I, I forget. But like threads didn't have the picture. Instagram didn't have the picture. I go on Twitter and my entire feed is the picture. And I was like, oh, Like when there's stuff happening, we just had big floods here in Massachusetts yesterday as well. And like, that's where all the news accounts are posting. Like, there's still a power in that. I'm curious, especially as we talked about, like going into 2024. What do you think replaces that? Or is it still going to be even with all its weirdness? the place where people go for news.
1: Yeah, I think it's less and less the place people go for news. It's interesting. I saw the Trump mugshot on Instagram and it was sort of like all over Instagram for me, but it was all over Twitter too. It is still very much a news destination, but I think it's less and less so. I mean, I I wrote a piece a couple months ago about TikTok and just kind of like, you know, how people follow the Maui fires or the, you know, war in Ukraine or these big events like people are following them on tiktok more and more because there's video footage especially of natural disasters or big things like i think people are turning more to tiktok for kind of that stuff the problem is the news industry is so beholden to twitter Hmm. and so addicted to twitter that it's just and politics is so you know the political people are and they can't seem to quit it and so i think as long as they're all there they're making it relevant i mean I was shocked, my colleagues and I were just discussing yesterday, the Washington Post is still running advertising. They're paying Twitter. And this is a platform that has banned multiple reporters that, you know, Elon has shown himself to be anti-journalistic over and over again, but they can't with their Twitter addictions. And so I, again, I think it's really harmful. That's why I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to try to use my feed for good, but I'm not going to do what I normally do on Twitter. If people want to follow my tech news and they want to follow me for everything that I'm pretty much known for. I want them to follow me on other platforms. I don't want them to follow me on Twitter because I don't want any more followers on there. It's just too toxic. Like get I don't want a single more follower on that website. I don't want anything else tying me that to
0: it. I keep getting them that every time I have an alert, I'm like, "What? what is this? Who who mentioned me? I'm like, oh, it's just another new. Fo-. I'm like, where did the- I haven't tweeted anything in weeks? Like, where is this person <laughs> coming from? Who is, you know, and they're always like they have 50 followers or something. So
1: yeah. Let's not forget that Elon also made it incredibly like much easier for people to set up bot accounts. Right. And the percentage of spam on the platform has, you know, exponentially increased. So not yeah. to say that your followers are bots, but <laughs> they might there be are a lot more bots on the platform. There's kind
0: of two different schools of thought. I think one is that Elon is this brilliant businessman, and there's you know some plot that none of us can understand to make you know boatloads of money or whatever off of of Twitter or X or whatever. And then there's this other side, which is he was brought in to dismantle it. And there's you know big funders or whatever that are that are paying for this to kind of say, okay, we had this great town square where everybody could connect and you know talk about what's happening in Ukraine or COVID or whatever the big issue is. Let's dismantle that, like do you have you seen any evidence in your reporting, I guess on either side of those, like is he oh, brilliant tons. or is he I, okay, yeah, yeah, no,
1: I think the reporting a hundred percent backs the second thing that you just said. I mean, I think Casey Newton specifically who's a fantastic journalist and founded his own actually news website on Substack, but he also has a podcast with the New York Times and stuff. You know, he's reported extensively about sort of this basically like Twitter as a political project for Musk. And part of the reason he has huge amounts of money from the Saudis is because they have a political interest in dismantling Twitter and Elon Musk himself wants to use the platform to mainstream a specific far-right ideology and push a lot of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and a lot of um so disinformation. I mean, look at what he's done to journalists on the platform in terms of removing the blue checks and making it harder and harder to sort of trust information. That's what like I think people don't understand is that like it is in rich and powerful people's interests to have a confused an uneducated public. That is what they want. They don't want an educated and informed public because it's harder for them. You know, it's harder for Elon Musk to fight against unions when people are educated about like labor laws or whatever, you know, not to say that they're all getting it from Twitter. But, you know, Twitter is this really important place and it's a place where it was really the only social platform where it was very easy to speak truth to power. Instagram, it's like things don't spread. Things are contained in comment sections, Right. right? everything else is kind of video based. You can't share links. So Twitter was this real powerful platform. And yeah, there's a lot of people with a vested interest in dismantling it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, thinking about what's next, like you mentioned in the book, kind of how TikTok's algorithm is skewed towards like, it doesn't matter if you have a fan base at all, you might have three followers. Like if you have a video that people are liking, in, in very quick succession, you could have two, three, four million views. I can imagine you were talking about like the Maui wildfires or something like having first-person accounts of news that's happening, that's huge for that. I wonder, though, like the dialogue piece of it, like Twitter, as you yeah. say, you could respond and have a conversation and spread it. How does that work on TikTok? I say as an older millennial who who is half afraid of the platform because it just flashes and moves too fast at me.
1: Yeah, well, you can basically stitch people, which is sort of the TikTok equivalent of a quote tweet. Yep. But it's not; it's it's very hard. The discovery on on TikTok is nothing like Twitter because it's not text based. Sure. So it's just it's so different, and um, it's much harder to find breaking, a sort of real time news. You you do see these viral videos and first accounts of things, which is incredible. But it's hard. It's hard to find, and again, sometimes first person accounts are great, but they don't have like really necessary context to them, or sure. you know, they don't have a reporter kind of like framing them in a, in a way that where it makes it clear what's actually happening. And so, I think it's exciting, and I love TikTok for news. I, I have a bigger following on TikTok than I do on Twitter at this point, but it's but it's hard. It's it's hard to get real time news out. You can't link to anything. And so, you know, disinformation is a big problem on there. Sure. I mean, kind of
0: wrapping it all up, um, I love the way you end the book. Uh, I'm going to quote here for a second. Just when one thinks of the media, they often think of broadcast news and newspapers. In reality, creators are the media of today. Then you go on to say, legacy institutions that refuse to adapt will continue to fade into oblivion. I want to ask you about that in particular, (laughs) just because of kind of your work for, you know, the Daily Beast, Atlantic, New York Times, now the Washington Post. Like, you have been kind of attached to these legacy media organizations for a while. I'm curious, sort of, why you stay and, you know, why you don't just go off on your own or, you know, whatever it looks like in 2023.
1: Yeah. Well, the Daily Beasts, I would not consider legacy. They're barely, I mean, they're only that, really 15 okay. years old. D- digital, um, but yeah, sure. yeah. It's like digital media. Um, I would say The Atlantic and The Times and The Post a hundred percent, like they're some of the most legacy places. And I do think that there's an incredible value in legacy journalism. I used to not, I mean, I was so anti-legacy media until I worked in it. And I now I I just am like, wow, you know, like there's a level of resources that you can dedicate to reporting projects that you can't find elsewhere, right? Like no one is going to pay me on Substack to spend three months on a feature story. They're just not. Like it's you have to constantly be like, Chasing scoops and sort of like doing these fast turnaround opinion pieces. And that's just very hard. And it incentivizes a different kind of reporting. And so I think there's an immense value in this hyper journalism that legacy media can support. But I think legacy media, a lot of legacy media is stuck in this really outdated sort of model of journalism and outdated notions of journalism. And they fall victim to both sides journalism. And, you know, they give base to bad actors. And they're not, you know, they want to be the sort of like people in an ivory tower, like telling you we're the authorities. And that's just not the world we live in anymore. So I I really hope that like legacy media people can adapt. There are some out there, you know, that are really good. Um, And then there's people like my editor where my editor is, you know, I don't know how old my editor is, but I think he's almost 70. And, you know, he's not out on TikTok every day, but he really understands it. He really gets it. You know, he's a phenomenal editor. And helps me do great journalism. So there's tons of people like that, I think. And maybe they don't always get the credit because they're just sort of like working in these newsrooms. But I, I just wish we had more people like that because I don't think it's an age thing. There are people that are very old that are able to get it. You know, um, I think a lot of people just rely on their age and sort of write it off because they just don't want to learn or adapt or change.
0: Yeah. And it, the, the the pieces are there. You've got to just kind of You've got to embrace it and realize that the business model is changing. And, you know, yeah, it's not uh, it's not what it used to be, but it is what's now.
1: It's not. And I think a lot of people going back to power legacy media used to have an enormous amount of power. And I think a lot of people who lead these organizations are delusional and they think that the legacy media still has a level of power that it just unfortunately does not. That's also because they're maybe in their circles, you know, social circles in D.C. or New York where they can live in that bubble. But if you get outside of that, you realize, wow, there's a really messy information ecosystem. And a lot of people, I mean, thanks to political agendas, too, and Trump saying fake news and stuff, you know, they've lost trust in these institutions. And so that's why we have to build trust with readers.
0: All right, Taylor Lorenz there. Great conversation. I, uh, I'm i interested in her thoughts on Twitter because it's definitely where my thoughts have been of like, is there something nefarious going on here? And I went back and listened the other day to my interview with Sarah Kenzie or back in 2020, and she alludes to something like this as well. So if you haven't heard that interview, go back and listen to it. I think at the time, Sarah had said it might be like a, a bad actor or something like that you know, essentially taking Twitter offline. Musk seems to be doing that functionally, but with a veneer of keeping things going. And it's kind of interesting just seeing that all play out. And it was interesting hearing Taylor's insights there. So yeah, I'm, I'm really glad she was able to join me today. Go check out Taylor Lorenz's book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. It tells you a lot about culture, I think, how we got to the moment that we're in now. And- helps chart a path forward. Don't forget I publish a newsletter twice a week. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter to get on the list there. heathrasella.com slash newsletter. You can also follow me on social media at heathrasella is my handle everywhere. I will talk to you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Taylor, for being here. Until next time, stay safe.